0: Oh, window found it, crawling in. Would you mind telling me whose brain I did put in?
1: Abby someone.
0: Abby someone. Abby who? Abby you gigawatts. Tell us about yourself. A tiny clump of cells in my cerebellum had ruptured. That doesn't make sense.
1: What? Yeah, I know, nothing is real. (laughs) This is Westworld. We're all robots. Great. I want the truth, guys.
0: Let's get this podcast on the let's get this podcast started. Welcome to Mimi and the Brain. Wow. Not only is it Mimi and the Brain, it is the very first Mimi and the Brain live episode. You are physically here in seats. People are physically watching somewhere else right now. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, we made our way in today in a cute little zip car, a little smart car we drove over and it was beautiful. Thank you so much for having us. I uh, just want to say to my mom, we made it. My voice is booming throughout this science center right now, and I'm just so grateful. <laughs> um, thank you so much for being here. This is Mimi and the Brain. It's a podcast about brains for people that have them. So you're in the right place. Um, this is some, a podcast where I work to understand the brain and my brain with brain experts that I find along the way. So, let's get to business, shall we? Some claps? Some acknowledgement? Yes! Yay! Let's do it. Uh, so, don't worry, front row. You will have a chance to answer, uh, ask questions, or you can answer questions if you want to. Uh, you can ask questions at the end uh, for Allison and I. We're going to be happy to get, do some live Q&A with you um, today. So, right next to me, I have the wonderful Dr. Allison Navis. Please give it up for Dr. Allison Navis. Hi, okay. Thank you. Okay. Uh, she is from the Mount Sinai School of Medicine, and we're really happy to have her today. So, Allison, let's get going. Um, you're the real deal. You're a neuroscientist, and you're a fellow in the NeuroAIDS department, where you focus on the spread of infectious diseases. And people are really putting up, you know, they're, they're picking up what you're putting down, I would say. I hope so. <laughs> you, uh, you won the Resident Research Award in 2017. The Woman Leadership Award in 2016. You're crushing it, yes. Thank you. She really is. You're also really involved in global health and advocacy, and you've done a lot of research in Zambia while also turning this all into a one woman show and performing it on stage at science festivals around New York City. So that's pretty cool for you. Yeah. So I'd like to start here a question today. When was the very first time that you were interested in science, that you kind of welcomed science into your life for the very first time? Um, I think it started pretty early,
1: kind of around the age of some of the, the audience members here, which is amazing. Um, my dad was loved science, and so we would always do lots of little experiments growing up. So we would collect rocks, and then we would put them into, like, the rock machine I don't know what it did but it like tumbled them around and then they came out and they were all like shiny and different colors and beautiful uh you know he had all these chemicals you would mix together to create like different colored flames and what flaming was, rocks yeah you <laughs> just uh, let light them on fire <laughs> my dad just loved doing little science experiments and kind of making you be intrigued about the world and so ever since I was a little kid that's what I wanted to do um, and then it really wasn't until I went to college and started studying brain stuff, neuroscience, uh, that I really fell in love with the brain and just how fascinating and complicated it is and how little we know. But hopefully one day we'll know a lot
0: more. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I'm surprised you didn't go to into like geology. No,
1: I just like making the rock shiny, but I don't really (laughs) want to like study them that (laughs) much.
0: No, we don't need to know about them. They just need to be shiny. Yes, okay. (laughs) Perfect, perfect. So for those of us in the room who are not neuroscientists, can you step us through, walk us through a quick day in the life of Dr. Allison Navis? Sure. So
1: um, not only do I do research, but I also see patients um, who have any issues, brain issues, neuro issues. Um, So my day is kind of a mix of both of that. Um, I get up and go to work like a lot of people, and I have to get my morning coffee at my uh, favorite bodega. That's the most important start to the day is always coffee. Yes, I agree. Um, Get my brain going. Uh, And then the first part of the day is really doing, uh, working on some research projects. So we've got a bunch of different projects looking at sort of how the brain changes over time, um, when for people who have had a variety of infections in their brain, so we have people come in every morning, and I talk with them, I meet with them, I do exams, uh, a lot of sort of boring data input stuff, which is always part of research. But
0: oh no, uh, I love data. I love boring <laughs> data entry.
1: Lots of writing stuff <laughs> in computers, um, and that's sort of the morning part. And then in the afternoon, I see patients, and so I go to my clinic and I see like up to maybe ten patients in the afternoon. And it could be anything from people who have had strokes, to seizures, to, you know, really bad infections around their brain, and then also just sort of your common, like, back pain, headaches, stuff like that. So it it kind of runs everything uh, in the neuro world, but I, I really like that. It keeps things very lively.
0: What is the craziest thing you've seen, like, on a day on the job? Oh, it's always different. I mean, people
1: come up with all sorts of stuff. But because I do infectious um, research, or that's sort of my specialty, you know, we have people come in, and, and sometimes someone will come in and just say, like, I've had a, a headache for, you know, a couple weeks or something. Maybe they had a fever. Uh, and then they come in, and you find that they have this big infection in their brain, and that's when I get called in. Um, and you, it's really kind of surprising. You have no idea that this is going on. Um, but I don't want to say that and scare people. If you have a headache, you probably don't have an infection. I have a headache right now. I'm I'm just like, (laughs) no, it's okay. I think everything is fascinating. I mean, just the brain kind of controls everything, and so anything that goes on in it kind of manifests in this different way. And whether it's just sort of a change in the personality, or you know, not being able to move as well. Um, You know, it's always kind of a mystery. People come in with all these symptoms and you got to kind of go down a road and, and do a little.
0: You are the Sherlock soothing. Holmes. Yeah, I try. Of neurology. I love that. That's that's really interesting. I also love that you just you you start your day with the bodega and the coffee. Most like important. Fifty part. cents, right? Yeah. Done. Deal. Absolutely. Love it. It's the best coffee. Right. right. <laughs> How you doing out there? <laughs> we have a live audience. <laughs> All right, so Allison, I'm sure, um, like other professions out there, there are tough things and mundane things, you know, data, um, the slog. Um, but what's the most rewarding part of the work that you do? What's that one thing that you just get out of bed for in the morning?
1: Um, I think I really get out of bed for the connections that I have with my patients, and just the the feeling that you can actually do something to make a difference. Um, that's really the most important thing. I mean, I think being a doctor, you always think about making the right diagnosis and treating something, but for me, especially treating things related to the brain, a lot of times there isn't something you can just give a medication for and it goes away. And so you really end up developing these lifelong relationships with your patients. Um, and a lot of the people that I've been seeing for years, you know, they just come in and talk to me. Uh, and you know we just talk about our lives and everything that's going on, and I know they're family members and um, and I think really forming that bond and feeling like you're you're there for someone personally and not just there to kind of write a prescription and, and walk away is is really important, and I think sometimes that's how you can make the biggest difference.
0: Yeah, I think you're a rare breed because I've had a ton of doctors. Who don't behave that way. And I find it very refreshing that you do. Yeah, Unfortunately, that's not uncommon. (laughs) Bedside manner? What's that? (laughs) Just stare (laughs) at the computer. Yeah, yeah. And like really weird, you know, ways that make me feel like I came in here and I'm vulnerable and I don't feel well. And, you know, something is wrong, but I'm not sure that's also why you're here. You know, and then being faced with like, oh, I'm already on a phone call with someone else. Also, what do you need? Get out of my face, you know. Um, So it's really nice to hear that.
1: Yeah. No, I think the most important thing is just being there for the patient and explaining what's going on,
0: trying to comfort them, trying to be there for them. I'm going to make an appointment tomorrow. (laughs) 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 Um, I've always I've obviously read uh, all of your research about your work abroad and your research in global health initiatives, um, primarily in Zambia. But our audience probably hasn't read those things. Um, So this is a two-parter. Okay. Um, So what kinds of work are you doing in these communities, in these countries? And second, why do you feel called to travel to these different places for your research?
1: So I, the past few years, have been going to Zambia um, and doing some work there. Um, And it sort of, it grew out of, you know, neurological disorders, issues with the brain, occur everywhere throughout the world. Um, But they've typically been considered more, like, Western-type issues because they require a lot of resources to diagnose and treat. Um, And so in a lot of countries throughout the world, people really just focused on, like, infections and surgical issues and and neurology and neuroscience stuff has kind of fallen to the side. But it actually turns out that brain issues are the number one and two cause of disability and death around the world – uh, but there isn't that much sort of um, outreach and resources being put into that. And so there's a big push to try and expand uh, brain awareness throughout the world. Um, and there's really a lot of important things going on. So I just I got involved by going to Zambia and starting to uh, help train doctors there in uh, neuroscience uh, and neuro- neurological disorders to hopefully try and and grow uh, sort of a a local, organic neurology program so they can treat these things. Um, And then I also help with research because just because you know what causes something in one place does not mean you know what causes it everywhere else. So a lot of the research we do here, um, you know, we can't apply that to other places in the world. Uh, but research is really the number one way to understand how to treat something and, and how to you know go forward with uh, trying to improve it. So not only do I go there to try and train people in uh, neurology but also to kind of do some research and grow research program there so that we can understand what the issues are there better.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I imagine that um, there's a lot of obstacles to doing that in a in a different country.
1: There is so the first thing is again just sort of raising awareness um, and and I think you know the the awareness is there it's just trying to get sort of um, more eyes and more funding and, and money there because money is always the important thing um, but you know every time I go there I mean I go there to learn as well because I I treat infectious things and you know you really there's you learn so much when you go there and the doctors are amazing and so they teach me um, a lot. And then, you know, I can help teach them some of the neurological things that the, the training hasn't been there historically, but hopefully going forward will be.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's encouraging. I think that work, you know, needs to be done. And the more I hear about people going to do it, you know, Doctors Without Borders and um, we're all like people. and We all deserve to like be given help for what's going on. And the more educated we are and working together to spread that awareness, I think the better off that we're all going to be, you know.
1: Exactly. But
0: I think it needs to grow
1: from sort of a, a local um, grassroots level and not just have people kind of swooping in and deciding what needs to be done and, and making those changes, but really going somewhere and sort of working with the communities there to figure out what the issues are and, and help change them that way. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So you've done some really interesting research about infectious diseases in the brain, primarily HIV and AIDS. Can you tell us what goes down in the brain when someone gets an infectious disease? How does it travel to the brain? Can you paint like a picture? Hey, buddy. (laughs) Um, Can you paint a picture for us of what that looks like?
1: Sure, so there's little bugs and organisms all over the place all the time. They're on your skin right now, they live in your body. Uh, And sometimes if something, you know, a specific little bug or bacteria gets into your body, It might go to your lungs. It might cause like a pneumonia and give you a cough. Uh, It might go to like your stomach and you could get like an upset stomach. Um, And usually it just stays there and your body kind of deals with it and it goes away. Sometimes you need antibiotics, but sometimes it gets into the bloodstream. And when it gets into the bloodstream, it can start going anywhere else in the body where the blood goes, which is pretty much everywhere. Um, and so, in very rare cases, but you know, it can happen, it can go to the brain. So, through the blood, it crosses into the brain, and once it's in there, it just starts living there. And the brain is a very special, contained place. We don't want stuff just easily getting in there. Um, but that means that once a, a bug gets to the brain, it's really hard for our body to fight it off. Uh, so it can really start growing and multiplying. And then when that happens, it starts disrupting and sometimes killing the brain cells that you have. So it depends on sort of what type of infection it is and where in the brain it's occurring. But you can get all sorts of symptoms. So, you know, you can sometimes have trouble like moving one side of your body if it's if the infections where, you know, you, you control your movement. Uh, sometimes you can get, like, memory issues. You can get really confused. You can hallucinate. Um, I mean, the brain is, is a, a fascinating place, and it controls everything. So it really depends what where the infection is. But you can get all sorts of symptoms from
0: that. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you said hallucinations. It's almost like I showed you these questions beforehand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So Allison, as you know, uh, a pretty strange thing happened to me, which my audience might not know. And before I was a podcaster or a comedian or even a writer, I was actually a high school teacher and I got five days in and I had a brain hemorrhage, just totally random. And sometimes I blame the students, but I don't think it was their fault. Um, and, And so when I did the brain surgery, they took me down to this anesthesia room, which maybe you hang out there with your colleagues. It's a super fun place where they take people after a major surgery coming out of a lot of medications with a bunch of other patients. And so I went down there right after brain surgery, and I swear to you, Allison, I heard these nurses yelling at this woman named Helen. They were just yelling at her, like, don't do that, sit down, don't take those out of your arms, stop running around. And I just couldn't figure it out. And I also couldn't see her because my vision was double and sideways rotated double and sideways very strange not like a teacup ride not very fun Um, so I don't know actually if she's real to this day I'm not sure if I just hallucinated Um, the nurses I remember laughing at me because either like there really was a woman running around the room or I was just going crazy Um, how often do you see this with patients that you work with where they're just totally hallucinating um, and they don't even know what's what
1: all the time all the time. I feel like that's the first thing that happens when, you know, your brain's not functioning 100%. Um, actually, this happened to my mom as well. Uh, but my mom had a, a really bad infection and was delirious. And she was seeing a guy in a pink bunny rabbit suit running all over the hospital.
0: Maybe maybe that bunny is friends with Helen.
1: Maybe. Maybe it is Maybe Helen. it is <laughs> Helen. <laughs> the plot thickens. Um, yeah, but she was hallucinating a lot. like three weeks Um, and then finally the infection cleared and she stopped hallucinating but you see it really all the time so anyone who is sick from pretty much anything it doesn't need to just be an infection it doesn't need to be something going on in the brain like a bleed Um, but it it just really disrupts all the connections in the brain like if your blood is kind of toxic and stuff's going on in it um, the brain doesn't work well I kind of like to describe it as like a car needing like good gasoline to run and if you fill your car up with really bad like diesel uh, i've you know, done that
0: i actually almost broke my mom's car i did that like a month ago <laughs> see that's
1: kind of what happens it's really bad brain, you know like the car may actually drive a little bit but i
0: thought dry. it was gonna explode i was like what do we do we had to drain all we had to get someone to drain all the the okay it's not important anyway <laughs>
1: That's kind of what's going on with your brain if you know you're you're sick or you have an infection is you know your brain's just or your blood is not able to sort of supply your brain with the nutrients it needs to really function uh and so kind of like a car making weird noises and and breaking down that's sort of what happens to the brain but that just comes out as like hallucinations because you don't really understand what's going on.
0: Yeah, so so you said your mom it took her 3 weeks to come out of that delirium.
1: Yeah. It was a very long time.
0: Yeah. Were you worried?
1: Very. I mean, I knew what delirium was. I knew probably why she was going through this um, and that it would pass and it would get better. You know, I had a background in brain stuff. This was before I became a neurologist, but I was, you know, still had an understanding of what was going on. Um, But, you know, after one day, two days, three days, you know, you, you start... Worrying and you start you know wondering like if if she's ever gonna come back mentally um and by the the third week, the doctors were coming up to me and saying like "Are you sure your mom was not always like this uh, and I was like no like there's no she doesn't usually see a man in a pink bunny rabbit so <laughs> that's um, not normal <laughs> no uh and that was worrisome as well because you know when they start kind of pushing back on that and challenging that you're realizing that they maybe don't know if she's gonna get better um but she did just one day you know one day she's like in her bed trying to escape and grabbing at imaginary things on the wall and the next day i come in and see her and she's completely back to normal um and it's it's kind of fascinating how at some point something just sort of switches and the brain just kind of comes back online uh and you you don't really know what that is what that point is and what exactly happens but yeah, the brain's just like, all right, I'm good.
0: I'm back. I'm here. And I'm done with the guy in the bunny suit. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's, that's crazy. Speaking of being super paranoid, um, last night I Googled a couple things cause that's what I like to do before I podcast and like Google a bunch of stuff and I Googled, um, brain infectious diseases and I came up with this really interesting and slightly terrifying new one that I saw in the news. They're calling it zombie deer disease or zombie antler disease, which is kind of a misnomer because it does not turn the deers into zombies. Although that would That's be good, kind of interesting. Um, so this is crazy. So they they're seeing that it's kind of like mad cow disease. It's a neurodegenerative disease, mm-hmm. and it basically like just destroys these deers and. I'm wondering, oh, it's with with prions, yeah prions we're gonna talk about prions. um, can you tell us what these prions are and what they're doing to these these poor little deer brains? yeah, so
1: prions and and mad cow disease, what it is is it's actually really interesting, so infections we usually think of as like little bugs, little viruses, little bacteria, and that's most of the time what they are um but with these these kinds of uh, diseases like prion diseases. The issue is actually with a protein. So proteins are, uh, they have a lot of functions in the body, but the way they function is highly dependent on their shape. So if it's kind of like a lock and a key, you know, the key that opens up that lock has to be a very specific shape. For proteins to do what they need to do, they have to be a very specific shape. And if that shape changes, then they can't do what they need to do anymore. So these prion diseases basically take proteins that are normally in your brain and they change the shape of them. And all of a sudden they're not functional anymore. So they start to build up in your brain and then anytime things build up that aren't supposed to be there, that can cause issues. So I'm always a fan of analogies, but kind of like on a highway, if there's a car accident... It's going to cause traffic. If it's a small car accident, it's going to cause maybe a little traffic. But the more cars involved in the accident, the worse the traffic's going to be. And then the harder it's going to be for any movement to be on that highway. So that's kind of what's going on in the brain when you get these buildup of things that aren't supposed to be there. Mm -hmm. Is that just the the normal pathways aren't working anymore.
0: And aren't the prions, like, not dead, not alive? Like, you can't destroy them, something crazy like that? Can't, yeah, because proteins are not... or alive you have
1: to put them under really high heat um like fire level heat to destroy them um so that's why if someone has some or or someone is concerning to have like a prion infection or disorder uh people take a lot of precautions to not touch anything you know if they have surgery on their brain you know people are in like spacesuits um because it can easily be transmitted, and there's nothing you can really do
0: about it. Do you think this could go to humans? I hope not. I mean, it's mainly in Colorado, where I'm from. It's a bunch of deer, and I'm a, I'm a vegan now, so I think I'm safe. But, yeah. Um, yeah, they were talking about that. It just really freaked me out, you I know? I mean,
1: most infections come from animals. But also animals have a ton of infections that never go to humans, so I'm gonna keep my fingers. Right. Crossed it's not it gonna be like the movie.
0: Yeah. The yeah. movie where it's like ground zero. There's so many infection movies. Do you feel like those Hollywood depictions I'm going off script here. Do you feel like those Hollywood depictions are true about the science of infections or are they just like going crazy with like, and then one person touched one thing and then everyone got sick? Yeah, it's usually not
1: that bad, but it can be. I think if there was one really good movie that had Kate Winslet in it. Oh, yes. And on the name yes, contagion. contagion. Thank you. That was super good. It was scary and I also thought it was very accurate. Um, so I like that movie, but even that movie, I mean the level of spread of the infections is usually much higher and faster than we see normally so there is a little bit of a Hollywood effect that doesn't typically happen but you can still see you know infections that can spread very easily I mean you have like the Ebola outbreaks that are pretty scary
0: I was in the I was in the hospital with my brain healing up when the Ebola was going around
1: yeah I was working in the hospital and we'd have like <laughs> Ebola drills um
0: oh what do those look like
1: they like basically had little rooms that descended that were all plastic um, and and you just have to go in there and, and take care of everything and you had to put your little like spacesuit on you got to wear a spacesuit. I personally did not, but uh, yeah, I got to watch people do that, which is is a little scary I mean because that's not what your typical day is in the hospital, and you know we're used to dealing with infections, and we're used to taking precautions, but spacesuit level precautions
0: is. Yeah, I had to go through the um, MRSA, MRSA swabbing deal when you go to the hospital. Um, they want to make sure that you're not contagious with anything goofy. So for the first couple of days, you're in a. Uh, I was in a rehab center, um, and they made me wear like a smock, I had to like mask up, wear like gloves just to go out to like the gym to like do my physical therapy exercises. You know, so I felt like this, like walking germ. Yeah. You know, yeah,
1: wash your hands all the time.
0: <gasps> yeah. My mom was like, No one touched her. Everyone washed their hands. I was like, Oh my God, I'm such, I'm so lame. I'm such a germ. <laughs> so, so I want to talk about uh, yesterday was International Women's Day. Yeah. Claps for ladies. Uh, this event that we're at is really a celebration of women in STEM, you know, forging their way past obstacles and really making a path for themselves and I will never forget when my mom told me this one time she said she was in middle school and they were building rockets that day in her science class and she was going to get her materials. she was going to pick up her rocket stuff and her teacher was like no the girls are not building rockets today and she had to go like sit back down and color or something she was so mad and I was so mad and I was like oh my god what's going on and you know, Have you had any obstacles as a woman in the neuroscience field, obtaining grants, You know, sexism in the lab, people telling you you shouldn't be doing something, and what motivated you to keep going in the face of those challenges?
1: Um, I've been fairly fortunate. I think the field that I'm in is actually very uh, women heavy which is wonderful, so I have some really great female mentors, um, which makes a huge difference. That said, you know, there's always little things that creep in that you're not even aware of in the moment. Um, So I'd say the the biggest thing is is I tend to be sort of quieter, um, and I get told all the time that I need to just, like, speak up all the time and share everything I'm doing and brag about it, and, you know, that that's the only way to kind of move forward, and no one's going to know what you're doing if you're not always flashy and talking about it. Um, And I think there is some truth to that, but I also think that that's not the only way to do things. Um, And that that's, you know, I think that women do tend to be a little bit on the quieter side and not quite as uh, loud about their accomplishments, which isn't good, but, you know, you can quietly achieve things. And I think it's not so much about just going out there and, and sort of Blasting everything you're doing, but making sure that the people that matter the people that can help you advance Know what you're doing Um, And and I think that that's It's been hard. I mean, and I definitely think that's one way in which uh, I've had to work a little bit more But I've been very lucky and you know my mom growing up She really wanted to be a doctor and she was told by her father that women are not doctors and that he would not let her be a doctor Uh, so she's been incredibly supportive and just, I've had so many wonderful mentors.
0: Wow. She must be like super proud that you're doing that. I think so. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, you know, feeling motivated to keep doing the work that you're doing, you know, what do you, what do you kind of turn to if something isn't, if someone is saying those things to you, oh, you should really do this and that, you know, how do you kind of like redirect yourself?
1: I think it's really important to have mentors and people who you know are uh, you can talk to openly and who are supportive and who can either you know support you in your career goals but also just sort of in your the issues that you're having. Um, and so that's been the one thing that I've really gone out and actively tried to find is some female women mentors. Um, and they've been wonderful, so they're the ones that all sit down and just say, hey, this is what I'm struggling with, you know, how do you think I should approach it? And my one mentor is like me and kind of quiet, and she'll say, oh, I've dealt with the same thing, people have told me the same thing, and, you know, this is how I moved forward with it, or this is how sort of I grew and changed. And it's it's really nice sort of being able to see someone who's doing what you want to do, who's also struggled with the same things that you struggled with, um, and who you can kind of see yourself in or see what you would like to... Turn into, mm-hmm. uh, so I think that's extremely important. Is just trying to find someone there out there to mentor you who who's dealt
0: with some of the stuff you've dealt with, mm-hmm. or has some understanding of it. Yeah, I love that. I have so many mentors. I'm constantly like bugging them about every life decision. <laughs> um, so I'm going to quote Dr. Mae Jemison, who's an astronaut and physician, and she said, "Never be limited by other people's limited imaginations." And I think that's Something that women are very good at, you know, is just continuing forward despite limitations that, you know, the patriarchy or um, anything puts on us. Um, but that being said, according to UNESCO, 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 we're going to go with UNESCO, Institute for Statistics, less than 30% of the world's research is done by women still today. Um, that's an incredible gap to fill. You know, what would you say to women and young girls, some of them have left, but... They can still watch it later. Um, What would you say to women and young girls who want to pursue science or are currently pursuing science and are not feeling supported in what they're doing?
1: Um, Kind of along the mentor thing, I would say go out and, you know, just seeing people who are doing what you would like to do or what you're interested in is so important. Uh, And I think too often, especially when you're younger, your experience with, like, the sciences and maths is just what you see in school and this very basic, intro classes which you know they're, they're usually I mean I struggled in that you know they're not really uh, presenting to you what is interesting and what you want to pursue and I found that you know I hated physics when I was a kid and I failed multiple physics classes uh, and then one day I read a book on like string theory it was a popular science book and I thought that was the most fascinating thing ever and too late at that point to go back and do physics but Um, just seeing that there was this whole other world out there that wasn't what was presented in class, that was so much more interesting. And then you start talking to people who work in that field about what they do, and and it really sort of expands your understanding of the field. Uh, And I think we need more of that, and we need to sort of give young girls and kids an opportunity to see people in the fields they're interested in who are doing things as a career, and not just what they see in their elementary school or, you know, school class, because that's never a good picture of what's going on. And I think we also need to just let people know that just because you're not doing well in a class does not mean that you're not good at that subject and that you can't do it. Um, like I said, I failed physics, and even my biology classes, I mean, there were some of them that I struggled with because the material
0: just didn't speak to me personally. I um, failed uh, U.S. history. Okay. Advanced placement. And then I went on to be a history teacher. So take that.
1: There you go. (laughs) And then
0: a science class in college, I failed the test so bad that I I was one of those people that draw the, the pictures on the back just as some last attempt to just get the professor to laugh at me and give me an extra point. It was a picture of an alien. And then I posted it in my classroom and I said, look, failure is acceptable. You can fail. Just keep going. So I think that's important to note too because you know, science seems pretty intimidating, at least, you know, to me, I'm not a scientist, I'm a podcaster that is becoming kind of a science expert. And I'm enjoying like doing all the things that I love to do. And no one's really checked me on that, you know, like no one's really said I can't do it. Right. Um, and I was really intimidated to talk to all these uh, brain surgeons and stuff when I started. And um, really, it's just been a, a powerful journey. And everyone's just been Super like, this is great. You're doing great. Nothing's wrong with this.
1: I mean, that's what science is, It's curiosity. So as long as you're curious, as long as you want to learn more and you're open to learning more, I mean, you're a scientist. And scientists will
0: love it. Yeah, I love it. Um, I also have had the privilege of watching you perform some storytelling on a show called Story Collider that we've both been able to do, um, which is about stories in science. If you've not checked out Story Collider, they do a show every Monday um, in in uh, in the city, yeah, in New York City. And um, can you tell us a bit more about your journey to science storytelling and what kinds of stories that you like to tell?
1: Yeah, so I started getting exposed to storytelling through some friends in the past few years. And I really... I loved it. I thought it was such an amazing way of, uh, mixing sort of creativity and getting sort of a message out there. Um, and I just remember watching them was so inspiring. And so I thought I'm going to try this and see how it goes. And I have no background in storytelling whatsoever. Um, but I, I managed to work with some people who do tell stories and, and, um, I think it's really an important way to get, at least for me, to get a message out there. So I work you know, with infectious diseases and HIV, and I try and do a lot of um, health advocacy, but I think traditionally that's been a lot of just throwing out facts and figures and numbers at people and hoping that people will say, oh wow, that, that means something to me, I need to do something about that. But usually that's not how you really connect with people and inspire change, is by like just throwing out percentages. And usually, you can inspire change by making it more personal, telling a story, talking about how that percentage has actually affected someone, um, putting a name to it. And I found that storytelling was a really great way of doing that. Uh, So, I had an opportunity to create a show about the work that I do, um, which was fun. And then, I had an opportunity to do the Story Collider, which was a little bit more of a personal story about how science has affected my life and that was a whole different thing but it's it was an amazing way of kind of processing experiences that have happened to you and and talking about how just science affects all of us even when we don't
0: realize it is yeah this whole science communication is really like blowing up right now which I love I love seeing scientists like get on stage and they're like I've never been on a stage before but I'm gonna do it Uh, it's super exciting um so speaking of sports uh I have had injury. That's why that happened. Speaking of stories, um, here's something I've never done in front of a live anything. Um, do you want to do a Mad Lib? Sure. Great. I knew you'd say that. Um, some of you audience members are going to have to contribute to this Mad Lib. So, so uh, lean in. You're in the back row. Okay. So I need, I'm going to go to the audience for the first one. Um, I would like an adjective. Call them out. Slimy. Yes. I've also failed grammar
1: full (laughs) time, so (laughs) fingers crossed. I remember an adjective. Okay,
0: uh, Allison, adjective. Ah, sparkly, sparkly. Okay, let's do um, an exclamation from the audience, like "Oh no!" or like "Shoot!" Pow! Pow! (laughs) Pow! Love it! Pow! Okay, Um, Allison, can I get an adjective? Dull. Dull. And can I get an, uh, another adjective from the audience? I know you have one back there. Glittery. That's a good one. That's one of my favorite adjectives. Okay. Uh, verb past tense, Allison. Ran. Ran. Okay. Um, audience, can I get a type of liquid? Soda. Yes. I really need some soda right now. Uh Allison animal plural pandas, pandas favorite animal' That's so cute. I saw one like sliding down a slide the other day at you, yes, on the t v it was here, okay, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were like, yes, I made that video <laughs> pandas, okay, um, can I get a color from the audience? Blue, I got blue, uh, can I get an adjective from the audience? humongous I love that I don't know how to spell that but I'm just gonna guess humongous okay okay uh Allison noun oh no now I can only
1: think of adjectives (laughs) grammar I told you I'm really bad at
0: uh brain brain there we go okay noun from the audience scientist and adjective furry furry and audience article of clothing A scarf, thank you. And Allison, adjective, slimy. Slimy. And Allison, occupation,
1: biologist.
0: Biologist. Is that what they are? No idea. I'm gonna love it. (laughs) Biologist. It is now. I'm becoming a biologist. Okay. So the title of this story is: Is Dr. Allison Navis a brainy scientist? Ready? Are you crazy about science? Do you go nuts for slimy experiments? Take this sparkly quiz to find out if you're a brainy scientist. One, your favorite saying is, A, oh, pow, what did I do? B, it's dull. C, this glittery experiment went exactly as ran. So how would you answer that? (laughs) What your favorite saying is, oh, pow. What I do, it's dull. The, this glittery experiment went exactly as it ran. This glittery experiment. Yeah, she's exactly. going to go with the C.
1: Glitter is great.
0: <laughs> Your lab always contains A test tubes filled with soda. That would be awesome. B: Pandas floating in jars. <laughs> <laughs> C: A few blue mice in cages.
1: Pandas floating in
0: jars.: I, I think definitely. yes. absolutely. Three. Your favorite thing to do at night is a. Go to bed and have humongous dreams. B. Laugh maniacally while bringing to life an evil brain. C. Plan tomorrow's scientist work.
1: Oh no, not C. I'd say having humongous dreams. Humongous
0: dreams. Yeah, I like to have my crazy <laughs> dreams. If you answered mostly B's, guess what? You're a furry scientist. <laughs> Go put on your long white scarf and experiment in your slimy laboratory. If you answered mostly A's and C's, you're better off as a biologist. (laughs) Applause for that. Okay, that was fun. Thank you. All right. I would like to take this opportunity to pass a mic around if you happen to have any questions. I want to take at least two um, from the audience. Any questions for Allison or I, um, you get to contribute. It can be anything at all. Questions about science, questions about podcasting, what we're doing, about the brain. Do we have a mic to pass around? Oh, we got one in the back. Ooh, we're going to get that on the mic because it's for a recording for a podcast. What was
1: your hardest day on the job? Oh, that's a good question. Um, there's been a bunch of hard days. I think anytime, you know, you get close or you have a connection with a patient or their family and something happens to them, it can be very hard. Um, I've definitely lost some patients uh, who I knew very well, and that's, that's never easy or you know at least it's not for me and I think if there's ever a a doctor out there who has no problem with that then maybe they shouldn't be a doctor anymore Um, those are probably the hardest days but then there's also just really long days where you're working forever and you're really sleepy and you're you're starting to get delirious yourself maybe seeing little pink bunny rabbits running around the the hospital (laughs) Um, that's much more common but but, yeah, I've had some really special patients who I've lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question.
0: Any more? Yeah, up front here. Hi. Just want to let you know I'm really enjoying this
1: podcast. Thank you. And I have a question about something you had mentioned earlier regarding pr- prion-based mm-hmm. diseases. How does a human get that? Because, you know, as I was telling you earlier, Uh, I knew somebody who had that happen to them, and it was fatal. There was nothing that they could do for them. So I was just curious how a human would get that if it's based on animals. Yes, there's a few different ways. Um, So it does act kind of like an infection, even though it's not like a virus or a bacteria. But if you do get exposed to the prions, they can force other proteins to kind of alter their structure and become prions. So it acts kind of infectious in that way. That's one way. Um, there are some genetic forms. Um, that's, so that's another way. But the most common is what we call sporadic, which just means it just happens. Um, and usually, like, there might be a, a genetic mutation that happens while you're alive. It's not something that got passed down um, that just causes this to happen. And that's, again, this is very, very rare, but of prion disorders the sporadic form is the most common yeah Mm
0: -hmm. let's take another question anything about science and ladies or podcasting comedy anything ask ask us anything ice cream i love ice cream (laughs) good i'm trying to eat ice cream that doesn't have dairy in it anymore it's really hard because dairy is really good. good tastes really good can you can we talk about dairy in the brain really quick Just just good I'm just gonna bounce off of that because I'm curious I've seen a bunch of documentaries about dairy and its impacts on the brain how it's kind of like a drug and it can like oh. mutate your brain have you heard anything about this I don't
1: know about that in particular but I do know that I love cheese cheese love is amazing cheese. and mm-hmm. I feel like sometimes cheese feels like a drug and activates those uh, reward centers in your brain but I think, yeah, anything that's, like, delicious and you love can definitely be a problem. Up, be a problem. <laughs> cheese and
0: ice cream are, are yeah. <laughs> What about What about a cheese flavored ice cream? No, that would be it's, bad, right? No, I don't know. Shouldn't combine. Those. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do one more question. Yes. Hi there, great podcast. Uh, I wanted to congratulate you, first of all, on your very first. Uh, My question to you, though, is um, in your travels to Namibia, you mentioned, right? Zambia. Zambia. Uh, Did it help to, oh, first of all, do you speak a foreign language? If so, did it help in the job out there? If not, how did you overcome the block or the obstacle? Thank you.
1: So I studied French. Um, I actually majored in it in college because I thought I would go to a French-speaking country, um, but Zambia is not French-speaking. Uh, so their, their official national language is English. It was a former British colony, um, but then there's many local dialects. Um, so I was able to speak English a lot of the time. Um, but I work with a team, a Zambian team there, and they speak, you know, the the main local dialects. And so, if there was ever an issue, you know, I would I would work with someone there. But yeah, language is a huge thing. We could talk forever about the importance of language, um, and how language barriers can really prevent you from uh, providing good care. Um, but and it's always important to have someone there who can help you with that.
0: Mm-hmm. And were there any like cultural? Um, differences that you noticed from working in those areas where you had to learn you know different ways different things
1: um I'd say the biggest thing I mean because the access to health care is is much more limited there and and if you're working in a hospital if someone shows up to a hospital they're usually extremely sick um and it's sort of you do anything you possibly can at that point but also there's still this uh this feeling of, like, the doctors know what to do, you know, defer to the doctors, there's no... You know, sort of the doctor kind of, like, runs the show, um, which, you know, here in the U.S. is a little different, Or sort of that paternalistic idea of, you know, you can't question your doctor at all is, is not really as present here, which I think is good. I think it's good to be able to kind of be aware of what's going on with your treatment and push back on it. Um, but that was kind of a a difference there where i was you know more like so we can do this or this you know what do you want to do and and it was more like no no you're you're the doctor you just kind of you say what to do um so that was one big difference
0: mhm awesome just amazing um so we're going to wrap up here and before we do um just so you know where to find us and how to follow the podcast and our lovely guest Allison um can you tell us where to find you on social media or any upcoming events that you maybe want us to look out for for you?
1: Sure. Uh, I'm the Neurologista, and uh, that's my sort of name on Instagram and on Twitter. And then I also have a website, AllisonNavis.com. Uh, and I don't have any upcoming shows as of right now, but I might, hopefully. So uh, there's a theater caveat in Manhattan and the Lower East Side that does science-based programming uh, and that's where I do all my shows so you should always check them out and see what they have going on
0: awesome thank you so much folks for sticking in this has been Mimi in the brain and I will be um, out by the gift shop I will actually be selling my book so you can come and uh, talk to me and Allison will be out there and you can come and talk to us thank you so much thank you today's episode of Mimi in the brain was written by yours truly with sound mixing by Jordan Gosperay, music by Lucas Murray music and artwork by Joyce Bangler. This episode was recorded live at the Liberty Science Center in Jersey City, New Jersey, for the Women in Science and Art Festival. Special thanks to Sophie Hutzik and the awesome team at the Liberty Science Center. For more information on their museum, planetarium, and monthly science events, you can go to lsc.org. And on a personal note, if you like my science podcast with the comedic twist, feel free to jump on my Kickstarter for my one-woman show, which will premiere this summer. You can go to www.kickstarter.com slash profile slash get Mimi to Fringe or simply type in I'll be okay in the Kickstarter search bar. Thanks, y'all. And as always, catch you gooey brains later. Um, should we do the end now? Yeah, it's my personal best. Can't do any better than that.